Romans chapter 10. Not wanting to go back and rehash so many things that we've talked about over the last few weeks. Um, just to suffice it to say that for the sake of this study today, um, when we look at Romans chapters 9 through uh, 11, we see that Paul kind of takes a little parenthetical uh, journey out of his letter to the Roman Christians uh, to write to the Jews and uh, specifically um, uh, address the Jewish the Jewishness of Christianity um, to look at Christ. And as it was then, it is still today. For a Jew to accept Christ is a hard thing. It's a hard thing because they have a very proud tradition in Judaism. Um, Christianity is basically a little sister, if you will, of Judaism. It's, it's something that has been birthed out of Judaism. Um, it's something that we look back on and uh, prior to Christ coming on the scene, we would, as a Christian, we would hopefully espouse Judaism. But when Christ came, something different happened. Something happened. For you see, all the way back and what Paul is attempting to do, if you remember, Paul was not always the Apostle Paul. Paul was the Pharisee, Saul. His name was Saul. And he was very, very highly regarded. He was a very important figure. He, was, uh, uh, he even stated amongst himself that he excelled his peers uh, as a Pharisee. He excelled them all, he said. He was a very devout Pharisee. He was, and what that means is that he was a very devout, law-abiding, letter-by-letter, dot-by-dot, jot-by-jot, tittle-by-tittle, perfect, as much as you could possibly be perfect. He was that perfect Pharisee. He was mentored by one of the greatest Pharisees ever to have lived. In fact, even to this day, the Jews would look back at Gamaliel and say he was the last true Pharisee. The last true and great Pharisee. And that was Paul's mentor. And so uh, Paul had, had excelled greatly. He was a Jew that, that when Christ came on the scene, he was adamantly opposed to Christ. He was adamantly opposed to Christ. I have no doubt that Paul would throw his hat in the ring to see Christ crucified. I have no doubt in my mind that, that Paul, his heart was, and it's no, not even a doubt, but Paul is proven in Scripture and he actually goes back and gives testimony of his own life of being so radical, so radical as a Jew, so radical as a Judaizer that, that, and a Pharisee that he would go back and he would think that the Christians were so out of balance, they were so out in left field that, that, that he w- they would ever even think and consider that God would ever humble himself to become a man and be subject 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 himself to the human race in order for the human race to actually string him up on a cross and kill him. That, that was preposterous to a Jew. That was preposterous to a hyper-religious Jew even to this day. For the, the, fair, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the Messiah that they were looking for was going to be a king. He was going to be a king. He was going to be a king that would set up his rule upon the face of the earth. He would be a king that would be more powerful than any Caesar there ever had been. 
than any dictator that had ever been upon the face of the earth. This Messiah that they were looking for, that they look back into the first five books of the Bible, which is to the Jews, is the Torah. And, and they would look back into the Torah and they'd say, Moses talked about this coming Messiah, this coming uh, prophet, the second prophet, this, this guy that is, is better than I am. He's going to be stronger than I am. Now, they would never look at Moses and go, we don't want to listen to Moses. The Jews would look back at Moses and go, man, Moses is the man. He's the man. This is what Moses said. And they would live by Moses, his words, and Abraham's words. And yet Moses says there's even a greater prophet coming. He is the one you're going to need to listen to. And so when Christ came on the scene, they had been taught through many, many, many years that, that uh, the, uh, the Messiah that was going to come on the scene, the, the, the anointed one that would come on the scene, was going to come in and rule and, and, and wreck every bit of the world's governments and set up his own government. Now that will happen one day. The problem was is that when Jesus Christ came on the scene, which I truly in my heart of hearts and what I believe Scripture tells us in the New Testament, I believe it even tells us in the Old Testament. In fact, in fact, uh, uh, let me just read something to you here. I mean, you see it every Christmas time. We see it. Here's the Old Testament. This is Jewish writing. This is what a Jew would look at. A religious Jew would go, Isaiah is a, is a holy prophet. He's somebody that we need to listen to. He's somebody that we must hold on to because Isaiah was a man of God who spoke the words of God. And listen to what Isaiah said about someone coming on the scene one day. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so Isaiah, the holy prophet, prophesied that there would come on the scene a son. A son that would be Israel's Savior. He would be called Wonderful. He would be called Counselor. What's interesting is that he would be called Mighty God. The Son would be God. They would even, they, he would even liken himself unto and be unto the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. And so here's the thing. To a Jew, they would look at this and go, well, we don't really know who that is. He's probably still coming. And yet, the thing is, is that Jesus did come. He was a Son that was given. He was a Son that was born of a virgin. And he was wonderful. He was a counselor. He was, he was the mighty God. He was the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. In Isaiah chapter 53, there's areas in scripture that we look back at the Jew and, and the Jew would look back at Isaiah and, and go again, holy prophet, he is what we need to look at. I mean, his, his words are direct from God. And so as, as a Jew would look back, even a religious Jew to this day, um, and, and please understand me to, to say this. I need you to really, really, really hear me. I, I don't know that there's a better friend to the Jewish nation than uh, me and, and, and the, the association of pastors that I'm involved with. 
I absolutely adore the Jewish nation. I adore the Jews. I've sat in their Knesset. I've sat in their government buildings and sat there and spoken to, to amongst other pastors with their governmental leaders. Uh, we've actually at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, where I used to be an assistant pastor over there, we actually had uh, Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu actually speak from the pulpit over there. Now, and granted, he wasn't teaching a Christian message, uh, he was basically, he had a big rally going on there and he spoke at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. We love Jews. We love, it. we believe, I believe wholeheartedly that if I want to be blessed by God, I better be blessing the Jews. And so when you hear me use the term Jew, please do not ever, ever think that I'm slighting them or I'm using it as a, as a obnoxious term because there's nothing further from the truth. I absolutely adore the Jews. I absolutely adore Israel. And I believe that if we as a nation turn our back on Israel, we are doomed as a nation, and that's what we're doing right now. I believe we must stand strong with Israel. I love Israel. Been there two times. Would go back in a heartbeat tomorrow if I could. For the greatest times of my life have been there. So I, just, I felt like I needed to say that. But here's the thing. <laughs> to a Jew, when you look back at Isaiah 53... Now, this isn't Christian writing. This, is, this, is, this isn't the New Testament. This is Old Testament. This is of the law and the prophets. These are the prophets. This is Isaiah. And you talk to a Jew, back in even that day or even in today, we look at Isaiah 53, and to a Jew, they would look at that and say, well, that is speaking about the nation of Israel. And yet, let's look at it a little bit and see if it identifies with Israel or if it identifies with somebody else because to make, it the Israel, to make it the nation of Israel, it doesn't necessarily make sense. And they know it doesn't make sense. And Paul knew it didn't make sense. Saul knew it didn't make sense. These are the things that, that troubled Pharisee Saul when he was a, a strong religious Jew. He was strong and he wrestled with some areas in Scripture that just didn't make sense. And I believe it's for that reason that when God knocked him, when Jesus knocked him off his high horse, he got knocked off a horse, didn't he, on the way to Syria? What was he going to Damascus for? He was going up to Damascus to kill a bunch of Jews, or to kill a bunch of Christians. Because how dare they ever say that God would become a man and ever humble himself to be killed at the hands of mankind? Not my God. That's an offense to me, and I will kill you because you say such things. And yet on his way up to Damascus, what happens? God knocked him off his horse, threw him on the ground. He's on the ground. And he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul, he goes, Lord, who are you? He goes, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Isn't it hard for you to kick against the goads? You know what he's saying to Paul? Saul, his name is Saul at the time. He's saying to Saul, it's really hard to do what you're doing right now because you know what? You cannot reconcile why you're doing what you're doing because there's a lot of scriptures in the Old Testament that you just don't understand how it fits. But let me tell you, Jesus had talked to all the religious Jews when he was still alive and he says, you search the scriptures for in them you think they, that you have life, but I'm telling you that they speak of me. You're missing the point. You're missing me. You're missing who I am. And so he looks back and he's identifying himself even back into Isaiah 53. 
And so Paul would struggle with this. The religious Jew even to this day struggles with Isaiah 53. But mind you, this is an Old Testament prophet that the Jews highly honor and they will, they will adhere to his words. The problem is that they have a hard time with Isaiah 53. It says, Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry, dry, dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, as I utilize the word he, I, you, need, you must, to a Jew, you must interject the nation of Israel there. And, and for sake of time, because I'm, I'm going to run out of time if I do a lot of this, uh, I want you to do two different things. I want you to put the nation of Israel in there as he, and I, then I want you to also, at the same time, I want you to go, let's put Jesus Christ in there and see which makes sense. He, Israel or Christ, has no former comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Israel was never understood to be a man. It was understood to be a bride. It was understood to be the bride of of God. And it would be reference to her, not him. God is him. Israel would be he. And so just even in that, we would look back at, at even how Israel was being referenced and this doesn't make sense if you put the nation of Israel in here. It's speaking of someone else. Look at what it says. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Now, mind you, here, to the Jew, they despised Christ. They did not esteem Christ, who he said he was. They rejected him. They absolute, Was he a man of sorrows? Yeah, he came unto his own, and his own received him not, the Bible says. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely, he has borne our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. You remember on the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was smitten by God because it was at that time that all the sins of the entire world, of you and me and all the past, present, and future sins that were upon us were laid upon the shoulders of Christ in that day, on that day, on that cross. And it was the very first time in the history of mankind where God turned his back on a human being. And so when we hear this grief coming out from Christ from the cross, it's the very first time in the history of mankind that God had turned his back on a human. For the Bible tells us God is not that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The Bible also tells us that God God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And so there is opportunity until the very and until the very last breath for you to be saved. And so if you sit there and you go, man, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin and I think God's done with me. I don't think I can ever be saved. If you ever get into that place, and you will, if you are a thinker, you'll get there. If you haven't been there yet, or if you, you'll get there. And if you have been there, let me just say this. 
The next time you get to that place in your life, here's a quick little test to see if you've actually stepped over the line where God is never going to forgive you ever again and he's done with you. Just do this. Here's a quick test. It's, it's, it's difficult. You probably want to write it down and put it in your wallet so you can pull it out. You ready? Here's what you need to do. You need to go. If you still have breath, you still have opportunity. You see? God is not done with you until your breath, your last breath is out of your soul, out of your body. You still have opportunity. Don't let the enemy tear you down. And so here's the thing. We go back into it. He was smitten by God. It's the reason that he cried out on the cross. It was the first time in mankind's history that God turned his back. And it just so happened to be that God turned his back on his own son. I don't know how I could do that. I love my son very much. For me to actually see him going through agony and sit there and go, I'm going to turn my back. And what you're going to see here in just a second where it says that it pleased the Father to bruise him. just doesn't, it just, it just, I don't know. What can I ever place where I could ever say confidently with, with conviction in my heart that, yeah, it pleased me to bruise my son. And sometimes, I'm just joking. Yeah. <laughs> no, but not in this manner. Not in this manner. Not in this manner. He was smitten by God and afflicted, but look at, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, you remember the flagrum that came upon the back of Christ? 39 lashes minus, or 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes upon the back of Christ to whip him to rip basically all of the Oedipus tissue off of, the, off of the, the surface of Christ's body. And there you have open wound, open muscle, open veins, open you know, blood just, just gushing forth from him because this cat of nine tails of leather and filled with rocks and nails and metal and glass and shards of sharp objects going across him and ripping the flesh from him 39 times. By his stripes, we are healed. All we, it says in verse 6 of Isaiah 53, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Remember what I said? The sin of the world was laid upon the shoulders of Christ on the cross. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment and who will declare, to his, who will declare his generation? For he was cut off, he was crucified from the land of the living. For the transgression, why was he cut off? Answers the next one. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. You know, well, the Bible never talks about in the Old Testament this coming Messiah that is going to have to endure suffering. No. The Bible tells Zechariah, one of the prophets says, listen, we'll come to him in that day and we'll go, where did you receive these wounds? Talking to the Messiah. In heaven. Where did you receive these wounds? And he would say, these are the wounds that I received while in the house of my friends. You see, there is a judgment, there is a, there is a punishment that is going to come upon their Messiah. But to the Jew, they had had so many different uh, 
uh, traditions that had changed and been manipulated in order to make it palatable for them because they never believed that God would ever succumb himself to mankind. And yet, Isaiah 53 can't make sense unless you begin to look at, at Christ. They made his, his grave with the wicked. They, they put him in a grave out there amongst unsaved people, people that had no relationship with God. But with the rich at his death, he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea, a very, very wealthy Jewish man's tomb. He was, he was with it, but he was with the rich at his death because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. How many times did Jesus say, what sin have I done? Share it with me here. For what healing do you accuse me of? For what good deed do you accuse me of? We don't accuse you of any good deed, but because you worked on the Sabbath. Because I healed a guy on the Sabbath? Because I, I told a man who had a withered hand to stretch forth his hand and, and be released from this, from, this, from this life of having a deformed hand? You're, you're judging me? You want to kill me because it's on this day that I said, hey, let your, head, let your hand be healed. Be healed. Your sins have, are forgiven. Yet, it says in verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin. You see, the nation of Israel just doesn't work here. The nation of Israel was never an offering for sin. They needed an offering for sin. They needed animals to be an offering for sin. They never were an offering for sin. Isaiah 53 is a tough passage to a Jew, to a very religious Jew. The only one that obviously makes any sense in Isaiah 53, and, and mind you, for lack of time, I'm already out of time. I'm not even going to get into Romans 10 today. So this is going to be our passage you know, for today, okay? Here's the thing. I could go on and on and on and on. We can go back to Moses. We can go back to Jeremiah. We can go back. We can go to Daniel. We can go all over the place. Zechariah. We can go in and look at Hosea. We can look at all of these. Um, Malachi. We can look at so many different prophets that foretold of Christ and what he would do. And yet there had been a jaded mind that came in. And, and, and here's, here's the thing that I, I want to lay out here again. It pleased the Father to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Jesus was the offering for our sin. He was the one that was an offering for our sin. He became a stumbling stone and that's why Paul talked about that back in Romans chapter 9 at the very end of chapter 9. You remember we talked about that. He became a stumbling stone for, for, for the Jews because... You couldn't reconcile the fact that God would ever humble himself and succumb himself to mankind and let them kill him and brutalize him. But you see, it was for that reason. Isaiah 50, 53 says, because we'd all gone astray. The whole world, everybody had gone astray. And so something had to happen. All of the world, all of this, all of the nations of the world, Israel included, had committed sin. They are not righteous before God. 
We'd turn everyone to his own way. But the Lord had laid on Christ the iniquity or the sin of us all. He had to go to the cross. God became a man. And if we go back and we look at, at Scripture, going all the way back to the, book, to, to the first five books of the Bible, Torah, go with me here for just a second. I want you to think about this. First man and first woman were? Adam and Eve. Good, good. Was there a law for them to follow? Was there a written law for them to follow? No, they didn't have a law for them to follow. So how can they... How can they possibly follow after God and please him if they don't have a written law to follow? They couldn't. And so God gave them an opportunity under their own volition to follow him based upon the goodness of their own heart because of the desire of their own heart. And he did that all the way up through Moses. So man was given the opportunity. God was saying, okay, here's the thing. I'm going, to, I'm going to eliminate every possible excuse of mankind. So from Adam all the way up through Moses, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give man an opportunity to seek after God and to give his heart to God based upon the goodness of his heart because he wants to follow God and that he wants to serve God. And here's the thing. We started with the very first two and they've already blown it. But I'm going to give you some time because you go, well, you only gave us an opportunity with one couple. Give us more of an opportunity. And so he goes, okay. So he gives us more opportunity, more opportunity, more opportunity, and it didn't happen. And so God showed that man given an opportunity to follow after God based upon his own volition because he just desires to, man will fail and fall short. Okay, that does away with that excuse. Well, if you just leave us alone, we would have followed you. No, because from Moses, I mean, all the way from Adam through Moses, you didn't. And so here's the thing. Well, that's not fair, God, because we didn't really know exactly what you wanted. If you would have just written down what it is that you wanted, we would have done it. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. From Moses all the way to the time of Christ, I'm going to give you a written law for you to follow. 613 of them, to be exact, 603 added on to the Ten Commandments. Here's the thing. Got 613 laws to follow. Okay. How long did it take them to break that? For goodness sakes, they were breaking it as the law was coming down the mountain. And yet, and yet, God says, well, I'm going to continue to give you opportunity to follow the law by the letter. The law was perfect. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law's not evil. The law is actually, the Bible tells us, our tutor that will bring us to Christ. You begin to see the mind of God. He's going, here's the thing. I'm giving man an opportunity to follow after me because of the desire of his heart. Didn't work. Not one man is justified because of it. All right, so here's the thing. I'm going to give man an opportunity to remove another excuse that if I lay out law, a written documentation of rules for him to follow, that, that he can go, well, I have satisfied all 613 for the entire, my entire life. I'm going to give him that, and here's the thing. No, no man ever perfected that, nor had any man ever lived according fully to the law. Every man had fallen short. Woman, child, everybody had fallen short. And so here, 
Man can't come to me. He won't come to me. He will not come to me. He is unable to come to me based upon his own volition because he desires. And now I've written out rules for him to follow after me. And I have proven that man can't come to me even if I write out the rules. And so here's the, here's the conclusion. Man is lost. Man is lost. Man is hopeless. You have no hope. I have no hope. Ah, enter Jesus Christ. It's not under own volition. It's not under law, but it's now under grace. It is now under grace. It's not my goodness. It's not my doing it because I desire or doing it because I have a law. It's now doing it because he did it for me. He did it for me. Christ kept the law completely. He was not, he, as a innocent lamb before the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. He was innocent. He went to the cross. He'd never sinned. That's why God had to become a man. Because man would never be able to not sin. David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. When you and I were conceived, we were conceived in sin. So it's not like you were born and then, and then until you got to a place where you had the ability to actually commit a sin, was it then that you lost your salvation? That's not it. Here it is. You were born into sin. I was born into sin. I was born a sinner. You were born a sinner. We have a sin cell gene that comes along with us. And it's the reason why God came upon the Virgin Mary. Because it's the sin disease is passed through the seed of the man all the way from Adam, all the way through, even to where we are today. It's the reason why God came upon Mary and a virgin who had known no man sexually. God implanted in her a holy seed, for it's through God's holy seed who knew no sin that unto us a child was born, unto us a gift a a son was given. And we called him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Why could we do such things? Because the seed was not tainted by sin. It's the reason that Mary was a virgin. Why Christ was virgin born. For you see, no man had a pure seed except God himself. And so God became a man in Jesus Christ. And then he lived amongst us. Perfect. He did what God called him to do. He did what God had intended the law to say. He did what God intended for man's own volition to do. He did those things and he found himself at aught, right? With the religious rulers of the day. They hated him. They hated him. They despised him. They rejected him. Do you think that that would have broken his heart? Let me ask you a question. If you have kids, and you have kids that despise you, let me ask you, do you sleep well at night? I don't think so. Think about the kids that you have that adore you, that if you're a parent and you love them. Maybe you're, every one of us have parents. And so this would identify with all of us. 
Do you despise your parents? And if you do, how do you think your mom and dad sleep if they're still living? And even if before they passed away, if they're gone, before they passed away, how do you think they slept at night? Do you think that, that it, was, it was pleasant? Oh, I'm so glad that my child despises me. And yet that's what happened to Jesus when he came unto his own and his own received him not. They didn't even recognize him because they had become so tainted by man's twisting of what God had said. I said it last week and I'll say it again and I'll finish with this. Here's the thing. For the first five books of the Bible, for a a scribe to actually copy out the Torah would be about 350 pages. 350 pages. What ended up happening is that the Jews, the religious Jews, they began to come in and say, hey, here's what we need to do. We need to begin to explain what the Torah is. We need to explain how to actually live according to it. And then we need to actually write another book that actually explains how to understand the book that we wrote to understand how to live according to the Torah. And so man put his hand in the mixing pot and stirred it up. What would it do to you if you're at a restaurant? You don't know me. You're sitting there eating your your food. You have your coke next to you or something like that and I happen to get up out of my seat to go to the bathroom or just walk past you whatever and I walk past you and I just stick my finger in your coke and just keep walking (laughs) what would you do would you drink that coke or would you go get that thing away from me I don't know where that finger's been especially if I just came from the bathroom (laughs) that's gross I'm sorry but here's the thing I did not say that. Erase that. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we put our hands into God's perfect word, that's exactly what we've done. That's what man did. That's what the religious Jew did when they went and they began to try to explain away God's word. And that's how they got so far off base that when Christ actually did come on the scene, they didn't recognize him. Why? Because one scribe writing out and filling out word for word the Torah 350 pages for him to write out. What, what, this much? According to the three books that the Jews put in to understand the Torah and became just as important as the Torah, you couldn't understand the Torah unless you understood these books and, and you, didn't, you couldn't abide by the Torah unless you abided by our books because the rabbis would get in and the chief priests and the, and the rulers, religious rulers, begin to write out more books and more books and more books in order for us to understand. They're putting their hands into God's perfect work, into God's perfect word, and they make something which is nothing less than an abortion of, of writings. And that's what they begin to live by. And by living by what man has written instead of what God has written, and explaining it away because man explains it this way and yet God says it a different way. Well, we explain it away by saying this. Here's the problem. You then take the heart out of God's word and you put man's heart into it. And all of a sudden it becomes a man's doctrine instead of God's doctrine. 
And Jesus rebuked the religious rulers for that. He says, you guys teach as the commands of God your traditions of men. That's what I have against you. You've taken my, God, my father's words and you've mixed them up with your man's word and you want man to live according to your word and not my father's word. And in so doing, you have aborted it all. You have made the Torah of no effect. How did they do that? Remember, 350 pages for a scribe to write out the Torah? The Jews went in there and they wrote 523 books to understand the Torah. 523 books to understand God's word. Here's the thing. Do we need man and a book to come in and say, here's how you understand scripture? I said it last week, I say it again. Listen, if you ever go to a church, if you ever come to this church and I say, hey, you know what, I just wrote a book and it it covers the whole of the Bible. Here's the thing. Take this book home. Read my book. Read the Bible, but read my book. My book will help you to understand what the Word of God says. Not to say that there are not some great study helps that are out there. There are some great study helps that are out there. But anytime another book replaces the Word of God, as the answer of, of things, of, of the truth, of the heart of the matter of the word of God, then we are in trouble. You need to flee. I give you the permission, get up from your seat and leave this place because I am now a false teacher. If I say my word supersedes that of God's word, we got a problem. Don't do it. And I know that they wouldn't necessarily come out, and even the Jew wouldn't come out and say, well... You know, the, the, the Midrash, the Mishnah, and the Gemara, they, they don't necessarily supersede God's word, but they just explain it. Well, what if I didn't adhere to any of those things? Could I understand God's word? No, he really couldn't. Well, then what you've done is you've elevated man's words above God's words, and I've got a problem with that. And that's where we run into problems. And that's where, there's the foundation of really what it is to get into next week's study. That's what Paul's going on. He's going... I was where you guys are. I was a very religious Jew. I was a Pharisee amongst Pharisees, man. I excelled above them all. I excelled above all my, all my friends and everything as a Pharisee, as a religious Jew. I was mentored by Gamaliel, greatest stinking Pharisee that was out there. You know, I had such a heart and a fervency to see this, this way, these Christians squashed. But let me tell you something. God knocked me off my high horse and he showed me who he was and he began to show me the areas of scripture that I know you struggle with and I know that you struggle with and I know everybody struggles with as us as religious Jews. Here are some areas of scripture that we struggle with and we don't know how to, how to handle them. But I tell you, let's take away man's writings and let's just put in God's word and let's now understand it for what God intended it to be. Just give an assent, give an opportunity to this one that we killed on the cross, Jesus Christ. Without any bias, just put him in these scriptures that you struggle with. That's what Paul's trying to do to his brothers. That's what he's trying to do to these Jews that he grew up loved them very, very much. Even though they're wanting to kill him, he loved them very much. And he says, please, just, just put Christ into those areas that we don't understand. And when you do, like me, it took Paul three years in the Arabian desert for God to rework his brain in these scriptures.
like me, it will make sense. Christ is the Son of God. Christ, the crucified and resurrected Christ that we put to death, Paul would say, is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. And we missed it. But let's not continue to miss him. Let's, let's not continue to miss him. Let's open up our heart and, and maybe our eyes and see, could it be that I was wrong? Nobody ever wants to know that they're wrong. If you're here today and you grew up in a, in a traditional church that, that, that had told you these are the ways you do it, you know, you know, you've got to have, you know, a, a, a song and then an announcement and then two songs or three songs and then a, a, a soloist and then another song and then the pastor gets up and he gives you an introduction, three points and a conclusion. And if it isn't done that way, then I want no part of it. Well, right now, if you tried to count any of my points, you're going to find out I had none other than one and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I try to make a beeline to the cross. I try to make a beeline to the cross and take you there with me. And I'm going to continue to bring it up and bring it up and bring it up because you know what? It's the cross of Christ that we need to preach. That's what we have to know, guys. It's Christ and Christ alone that saves our souls. And Paul, that's why he's speaking to the Jewish brothers going, guys, you've got to see what it is that I see. All those things that we struggled with back in school that we couldn't make fit the nation of Israel. We didn't know who they were talking about. Christ plugged himself into that place. And it blew my mind. He fit perfect. Which means that in my lifetime, as a religious Jew, as one of the Pharisees, as a, as a council member on the Sanhedrin, as I, Paul, I blew it. I was a part of putting him to death. I... I missed it. You want to know what drove Paul for the rest of his life? It was that. I missed Christ. I missed him. In my lifetime, I never thought that it could happen to me. I missed him. And I will leave you with this and we close here. And this is, it's this. Don't be like Paul was back in that day. Don't you miss Christ. Because the things of this world are too glittery and shiny. Gang, I believe our time here on earth is not, not we don't have a lot more. Not a lot, a lot of more time. We got some pretty perilous things that are going on in our world right now. I just appeal to you to just consider back 20 years ago and see how far we as a nation have digressed. Purity, purity is being cast as something vile, as evil in our society today. Purity, evil. Word tells us, woe and beware of the days where they call evil good and good evil. We're doing it, we're, we're living in that day. And I know it's not about the United States. I don't even see the United States spoken of prophetically in Scripture. I know some people like to try to make them fit. I've tried, and I've never been comfortable saying, yep, that's the U.S. Which means, I don't know what it means. 
don't know if that just means that we become so ineffective like we are becoming right now. The nations of the world are laughing at our political system, our government officials. They're mocking us on TVs across the, across the world. Are we just going to become a non-factor? I don't know. I don't want to get all political on this, but I think China owns more of the United States than the United States owns of the United States anymore. We've sold our soul. We've sold our values. We've sold what it is that we were founded upon in this nation. And because of it, we're going to reap the whirlwind. And so I don't know how much time we have left. Could have many years, I don't know. Not saying, hey, Christ is going to come back next week. I'll never say that. But I can tell you this, it wouldn't surprise me if Christ came back today. And the point that I want to make in that is, don't you be like Paul and go, I missed it. In my lifetime, I never thought that I'd be so stupid as to miss it. I missed it. Can you imagine being Paul going, man, if only I could have been alive, if only my eyes would have been open when he was here. Man, what a blast that would have been. It would have been a blast to hang out with Christ. But I blew it because I was jaded by what the world was telling me I had to do, what the church was telling me I had to do. I leave you with this. Get your nose and your eyes and your heart and your soul into this word of God. And don't ever, don't ever, don't ever let anybody get you out of this thing. You get in here. You read it. Take what I've said, go home, pick up, we're going to have this, this thing is, all of my messages are online. Pick it up. Go back, listen to it. And see if what I'm saying is not true. See if what the scripture is, if what I'm saying is not written in scripture. And if that, if, if you come to me and you say, no, that, that wasn't written in scripture, hey, I'll change. I don't want to misrepresent the Lord. But I want to be a herald today. I want to be a preacher today that says, guys, we have got to open our eyes and we've got to know what the word of God says. Let's not be silly and stupid as it comes to the word of God. Get your nose in this word and don't ever get your nose out of it because this is life and what's out there is death. Get your nose in the word. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you so much for today. Lord, help us to be men and women that search after you and seek after you with our whole heart, with everything that we have, with everything that we are. God, help us to look at the days and, and recognize that the days are evil. But God, that doesn't, that shouldn't, well, Lord, it, it, it should concern us. But Lord, let it not depress us to this point, to the point where we throw our hands up and say, what's the use? No, God, you did not handpick us to live in this day in order for us to put our head in the sand and say, what's the use? You handpicked us for this day to actually represent you and be strong and confident in representing you in this day. And so, Lord, from this day forward, let us, as we walk out of this building today, walk out in confidence knowing, hey, I'm a handpicked person. I'm a handpicked saint. I'm a handpicked son or daughter of, of God. And I want to go out and I want to live my life for him. And I want to show the world who God is. I want them to know it. I want them to know him. I want them to know the way. I want them to know that there's a future and a hope in God. And there is no future and there is no hope in the, in the direction that our country is going or the co- direction that this world is going. There is no hope in that. But there is hope in God. 
It's the only sure thing. It's the only thing that we really ever consider at a funeral. We consider God. In desperate times of our life, when someone is diagnosed with an with a inoperable uh, uh, illness, we run to you and say, God, help us. God, may we see the dire and desperate situation that we are living in in this day and let us run without becoming weary. Let us run to you and fall on our knees before you and say, God, we need you in our own individual life. Yes, God, we're calling for the nation. Yes, we're calling for our church. Yes, we're calling for our community. But God, I would be remiss to call out for you to insert yourself and to, to, to pour out yourself on these other things before I first call for you to pour out your Holy Spirit in my life so that I can live the, in the manner that would crack a smile upon your face, that would, that would please you, God, that, that one day I could hear you say, on that final day that I live upon the face of this earth, when I close my eyes for the last time, that I would hear you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your rest. May we, everyone in this room, may we have been provoked today to not just live status quo as we walk out of this building today, but that we would walk out of this building saying, God, I must live for you, will live for you, and by your grace and by your strength and by your power, by your presence, Lord, I will do this. Help me to maintain a walk with you all the rest of the days of my life. And when I slip and when I fall, Lord, show it to me so that I can correct it and get back on the path. I want to be like a shooting star in the remaining days of my life. I want to burn out brightest at the very end of my life than I ever have in my whole of my life. And so, Lord, we offer our lives into your hands right now. Use us, make us valuable for your kingdom's business in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.